How many of you have ever had the privilege and the honor to teach children? Sunday school teaching, maybe you're an aunt or an uncle, uh, so that kind of thing. You've, you've been involved with children that way. How many of you have had the blessing, and I use that word strongly because it is a blessing and not everyone is able to have this blessing, but had the blessing of raising children. Raise your hand for that. Raising children. Those of you who have your hands up, it's easy, right? Raising children or y'all got to give me hope. <laughs> got to give me hope. I have, I have three and you, you saw two of them up there. Uh, the youngest, she probably could start coming to children's messages, but three, uh, three children. And, and I, and whether you, and this, this example can be for parents, for teachers alike, anyone's ever had the the honor to, to impact a child through, through teaching or having a discussion with them, it's always very interesting. It's out of the mouth of babes come, come truth statements. And I'm being constantly reminded as I'm raising my own children that, that God is holding up a mirror to my own <laughs> sinfulness. Uh, and it's not that my children are bad or anything, but they're in that stage. They're six, four, and two. They're in that stage of trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong. What boundaries can I push? What boundaries can I can't? Can I not push? And obviously, you know, they make these little mental notes like, okay, don't draw on the wall because dad's going to lose his mind. Mental note, don't do that. That's wrong. Or playing with their food because dad's going to lose his mind. And they're like, mental note, that's wrong. It's just a lot of me losing my mind, really. But they push what's right, what's wrong, and, and it's our job as adults, as parents, as guides, as teachers, it's our job to set that boundary, to say, okay, now this is where, this is where you stop. This is where right is, this is where wrong is, and have them kind of lock that away as core memories. My, my son, and I hesitate bringing up my son because I feel like he's always one of my sermon illustrations, and these are online now, and so one day he may go back and watch them and be like, Dad, you always talked about me. What, what about the girls? I'm like, well, son, stop giving me all these illustrations. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, I, Caleb, if you he's such a sweet boy. He's a sweet boy and near and dear to my heart. But he is in that stage of what boundaries can I push? Not once, twice, but three or four or five times. He needs a little extra help uh, as he's trying to figure out what right and wrong is. And in one discussion I had with him, he goes, Dad, I just want to do what I want to do. And I said, well, pay the mortgage. No, I, I said, I said, same, buddy, same, same. As humans, this is the core of our sinfulness. We just want to do what we want to do. We be four years old or 40, we have a tendency to look at God and say, I want to be the Lord of my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be the king or the queen of my castle. Kindly silence yourself. Last week, we learned about the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Jennifer was up here, and she talked about the Apostle Paul post his transformation. And so now he's been transformed. He's an eager beaver. He wants to go out and just spread the good news of the gospel. He immediately goes and preaches. And Jen talked about that. Sometimes that wasn't so great. He still had some jagged edges on that he needed some softening. He's a little overzealous. And also he had the monkey on his back of his past. People kind of looking at him like, aren't you the one who breathes murder? Like, are you really going to start preaching to me? And she posed the question to us all, can people really change? 
And we left here with great hope and saying, absolutely, amen, thank you, Jesus. We can change through Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelling in our lives. That's how this works. That's how salvation works. You're supposed to see a transformation. You're supposed to see a change. But then I started studying for this week's message. And we get to our good old friend, our buddy, our pal, the uber disciple himself, the primo guy, Peter. And Peter pushes the boundary to the question, can people <laughs> really change? Uh, Peter, I, everyone go, oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. I thank God for Peter, because as we hear Peter's little mishaps and missteps, it, <laughs> we can let ourselves off the hook just a little bit, that someone who is, who is the guy who was able to say, you are the Christ before anybody else, the, the, the dude in which preached sermons and thousands converted, that this man could screw up as much as he does, then we, we have a good shot at trying to get this a little bit correct. I think it's a gift. God's like, hey, <laughs> look at Peter. Uh, but this week, we're going to bring him up, and we're going to see that old habits possibly kind of die a little hard, and that Peter needs some ongoing help, and that, that we need some ongoing help as all as well. And so we realize that it's not just a Peter thing. It's a human thing. It is a human thing to look at the Lord and say, I just want to do what I want to do. So what I want you to do, I'm going to jump right into the, to the scriptures and, and go to Acts chapter 10. And so the pew Bibles are in the back of the pews. If you don't have your Bible, get those out. If you have your Acts journals, journals, journal, journals still, you can open those up. We'll underline some things. And if you have your phone, you can open it up there too. And as you know, don't cruise the internet or I'll have Matt shut it down. Okay, so is he back there? Is Matt back there? Yeah, <laughs> good. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23. I'm going to set it up for you. We are, we are here now um, with a scene of Peter. But before we get to Peter, we're going to meet a guy named Cornelius, who is, uh, besides having a cool name, Cornelius, he is a Roman centurion. How awesome is it that Roman centurions are still being used? These guys who are just ingrained in Roman culture, army leader guys, whatever, and yet the Lord is using them several different times to show that the power of the gospel can get even into the hearts of, of people like that. And this is what's happening here, that it's not only going to change, there's these visions that happen, it's not only going to change Cornelius's life, it's going to change Peter's and hopefully ours as well. So let's look at this. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23. I'm going to kind of read and teach as we go along and discover maybe a challenge or two for ourselves. At uh, Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. And in the commentaries, the Italian cohort could possibly have been a group of, of, of the, that he was commanding that were used just in case. So I don't know if they were in active military yet. They're, they're kind of in the military, like reserves almost, like to come in if there's a problem. Uh, a devout man, is, is Cornelius is described by Luke, a devout man, circle that, who feared God, circle that, with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So what we find out here in Caesarea, which is actually the, kind of like the capital city of Judea, it's where all the muckety-mucks, the Roman muckety-mucks and the, the leaders, and that's kind of where they house themselves. And it's kind of a mixed bag of, 
of theology that's swirling around. Because in Roman culture, the way it kind of was, Romans had their gods, Greeks had their gods, and Jews had their god. And everyone just kind of kept to their own, and everything's fine, hunky-dory, so long as there's no civil disobedience and no one has to kind of rise up and say, okay, calm down. And Cornelius is in the middle of all of that and somehow responds to the God of the Jews, the God that we believe, Yahweh, is re he's responding to that and has taken up that there are things that Jewish people do that he wants to do as well to continue to have that interaction with the Lord. And so Luke classifies him as a God-fearing man. There were kind of two classifications that the Jews used for Gentiles who are kind of responding to, to, the, to the, I guess, the news of, of who Yahweh is and, and all the rituals that they do. There's God-fearing Gentiles. They're the God-fearing ones who they... They I think they believe in Yahweh. They, they try to do some of the practices. They're everything but culturally Jewish. I don't think they go into the circumcision too much. They don't go into rituals too much. It's just kind of like they're just, they believe, but they're not all in. And then you have uh, the Gentile converts into Judaism, and those would be full, they, they have fully embraced everything. They have fully crossed over. They've done all the things that they need to do to become, you know, Jewish, basically, as a Gentile. So Cornelius, he's the God-fearing type, but he is praying and he's continually devoting himself to God. Now at the ninth hour, now I say all that because you should see that Cornelius is kind of ripe for the picking. Like he's, he's just on the fence and learning all the stuff, and God is seeing that this is just a quick little turn for you, for you to be unlocked to everything that I'm doing. And so God responds to him in the ninth hour, which is around three o'clock in the afternoon, kind of getting ready towards the dinner time, ninth hour of the day, he saw, Cornelius saw clearly, circle underline, in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at this angel in terror and said, what is it, Lord? So he's responding correctly. He's responding with the appropriate level of fear, reverence, and what is it, Lord? The angel said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter basically back to you. Go send people into Joppa and bring Simon back to you. He is lodging with another Simon who is a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to Cornelius and had departed, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, meaning Cornelius is having now impact on the people he's commanding, not only his household, as it said first, but also the people in whom he is commanding. So you can get the picture that God is very real in his heart, and, and he's longing to follow him. A devout soldier from whom those among attended him, and having related everything to them, he told them everything and sent them off to Joppa to go get Peter. So score a plus for Cornelius, right? Gets a vision, sees clearly, responds thusly, amen, good job. Oh, Peter. The next day, verse 9, where they were on the journey, the people that Cornelius sent, they're on their way to go get Peter. They're approaching the city. Peter goes up to the top of the house where he is staying. It's about the sixth hour. It's around lunchtime to pray. Being that it's lunch, he becomes hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he falls into a trance 
and saw the heavens open up. So a vision from the Lord. Heavens open up, and something like a great sheet is descending, being let down by its four corners on the earth. In it were, underline this, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. It's going to be significant here in a minute. And verse 13, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Oh, Peter. How many times has Peter looked at Jesus and said, oh, never, by no means. Several is the answer to that. There's the time where Peter famously says, you are the Christ. Jesus says, great, A plus to you, you got it. Surely this came from a divine inspiration in you. Awesome, Peter, wonderful. And then moments later, Jesus tells his disciples, I am going to die. Three days I'll rise again. And Peter says, oh, never, Lord, never shall you die. Then as Jesus is washing Peter's feet, Peter's looking at his icky feet and looking at Jesus and saying, you're going to wash these feet? Ew, don't do that. Jesus responds, and Peter says, never, never shall you wash my feet. And then the last one is Jesus says, all you disciples are going to run away from me. You're all going to depart. Peter proudly stands up. I will never depart from you. Peter's got a little bit of a problem, doesn't he? He seems to have the words never, Lord, <laughs> attached to his vocabulary. And those two things really should never be in the same sentence when dealing with God's will. We never should utter never, Lord, when that is happening like Peter does. But here it is. Here's this vision. Eat these. And perhaps Peter thought it was a test. Maybe that's what the problem was. Peter maybe thought it was a test, and he's like, I need to rise to the test and say no. But it's bigger than that because Peter's wrestling with this very real stumbling block before him that's not only affecting Peter, but also all the other Jewish Christians, people who were born Jew and became Christians. They have a stumbling block that's in front of them, and God needs to push Peter over that ledge a little bit so that we can see what's going to come next. Never, by no means. I will never eat anything that is common or unclean. Verse 15, and the voice came to him a second time and says, what God has made clean, Peter, do not call it common. Underline that. This happened not once, not twice, but three times, so obviously a little hard of hearing, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, when Peter was inwardly perplexed, and so he has this vision, he hears it three times, and it goes away, and it says he's still doubting. He's still questioning, was this real? What does it mean? And behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was still pondering the vision, we're still doubtful. Good job, Peter. The Spirit, circle that, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them, here it is, without hesitation. Or in the Greek, it could also mean without making a distinction. Don't sit here and try to figure out what's right, what's wrong. Go, because I am the one who sent them. 
Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright man, a God-fearing man who's well-known and well-spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. This is very significant. What's happening, the challenge that's now before Peter is he has to go with unclean Gentiles to an unclean Gentile house and be in there possibly eating things that are being served to him that were not kosher, that didn't go through that stuff. But this is what God is calling him to do. And so Peter invited them in to the house to be his guest before they leave, which I think is rather funny because it's not Peter's house. Like, he doesn't say here that he consults with Simon the Tanner. Hey, do you mind if these, you know, three or four people lodge? He's like, come on, we got beds. He invites them in as guests, which is a very powerful thing because you're seeing Peter's slowly starting to connect the dots. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very good. You all get it. By no means. He's got this never problem. Peter not only says by no means, but he also questions, he debates the lesson of, of the vision. It has to be repeated three times. He's still inwardly perplexed and doubting. Look at the juxtaposition of these two visions. It's very, very important. You've got a Roman centurion, an unclean Gentile that has all sorts of cultural beliefs, whatever, is responding correctly to a vision from God. He immediately does what he is called to do. Match that up to Peter, Peter who is Peter, an apostle who has received the Holy Spirit, who has preached sermons where thousands upon thousands have converted, who has done many signs and wonders in the name of the Lord, get a vision from God and say, ah, not so sure about that. You need to see these two things because the prevailing stumbling block that is in front of Peter as well as all the Jewish Christians, is can a Gentile, an unclean Gentile, respond to the gospel of Christ without becoming a good Jewish person first? It's, the, it's in their DNA. They've, they, they've been raised in this. They understand that, that, that God's people, his chosen people are Israel, and, and this is where the Messiah is coming out. And so, sure, everyone, people can come in, but you've got to be a good Jew first in order to get that. Otherwise, there's no way you can understand the complexities and the truth of the gospel. It is something that gets into their stuff time and time again. Peter's going to struggle. He's going to be on the struggle bus with this a couple of times. In fact, Paul, if you look in the, the letter to Galatians, Paul has a throwdown moment with Peter because Peter is, is kind of beginning to toe the company line of the Jewish rituals and laws, and Paul's like, you're a moron. Please stop doing that in this Paul way. But puts it back in his face. Why are you doing that? You're misunderstanding the truth and the power of the gospel of Christ. How can Gentiles respond to this? My friends, the main point of the sermon today is this question. How often do we find ourselves in Peter's shoes? How often do we who may profess a faith in Christ, long to follow him, desire to know him more deeply and richly, 
are met with times in our lives where we say, by no means, by no means, Lord, I, I've, got, I've got a better idea and I don't, I don't really need to follow. How many times has this happened to you? We need to hold the mirror up. The story holds the mirror up to the, remind us that we all have a tendency to say, I want to do what I want to do and look at God and say, by no means. So let's look a little bit deeper at what's going on with Peter's by no means moment. As I said before, Peter has this issue. He's got a God complex. We've seen it time and time again where he thinks that he knows better than Jesus. We think he thinks that he has a better idea. He understands scriptures better. Peter, the fisherman, understands scriptures better than the one true Messiah sent by God who authored it all. And this is obviously a thorn in his side because it keeps coming up time and time and again. But the, you know, the fun thing is, and the great thing that gives us hope, is that in spite of that, in spite of Peter's imperfections, God still uses him. In spite of his doubts, in spite of his by no means God, never will you do this, God still looks at him and says, I'm not... I'm, you can be that all the way you want. I'm still going to use you. I'm still going to work through you to further this gospel. Let me soften some of these edges, but I'm going to still work through you. That should give us all a spring in our step, that no matter how much we're going to mess things up, God still wants and wants to use us to further his good news. The book of Acts is about the expansion of the gospel, case and point, period. It's about getting it out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? And that means that it cannot remain just a Jewish thing. If it remains just a Jewish thing, then it's only God to love the Jews. And that's not what it said. God to loved the world. The Jewish people have this privilege, and it's good. It's a good thing because God used them to show the world how he can make something dirty clean how he can make something that is unholy, holy. Think about that. When God was working through Abraham, they were just a people at this point. And so he works through Abraham, and through Abraham's obedience and faith, he consecrates these people as a holy nation. Now, if God can do that, why could he not do the same thing to a nation of Gentiles, to other nations, to other people? What do I mean by this? Look at what the vision says, the sheet comes down, and in the sheet are a bunch of animals and uses the phrase, all different types of animals, the birds of the air. It's a direct tie-in to Genesis. Do you all see that? It is a direct tie-in to Genesis. When, when God created the world and created all the animals and the birds of the air, and how did he create them? He created them to be good. Say that very loud. He created them to be good. The original tent was that God. So if God can create all those things that now Peter's saying, oh, they're unclean, God is saying, don't call what I have cleansed dirty. You're still in your old mind here, Peter. The old mind of the Jewish mindset is that that is defiled if it comes in contact with anything that is holy, then that holy thing becomes defiled and needs to go through rituals to be cleansed and made right. But God is saying, I have taken the dirty things that you're calling dirty through Christ. I have made them clean because it's through Jesus where the transgressions of the law have been satisfied. 
and any who believe and have faith in him are made clean. And that means both the Jewish folks and anyone who responds to this gospel through faith. Through faith, you have been made clean. Now, for Peter to say, I'm never going to eat those dirty things, God's really just saying to them, if you can't eat what I am simply saying is good, how are you ever, ever going to minister to other nations that you and your mind think is dirty? They are worthy to hear this gospel. And you know what, Peter? They're probably going to respond. And that is a good thing. Don't say by no means when I have made this great and possible thing. You, I'm going to use you to go and do these things. Don't wrestle in your mind what's right and wrong. I have told you. I have set that boundary already. Don't look at me and say, I want to do what I want to do. I have set it up so that people will respond to this gospel. It's so funny with the Genesis tie-in that in the Garden of Eden, when God says to Adam and Eve, he says, don't eat this tree. And now with Peter, he's saying, go ahead and eat these things. Both times, humanity looked at God and said, mm, I've got a better idea. And Adam and Eve eat of the tree, and Peter says, no, I'm quite full, thank you. By no means, Lord. God is a parent setting the boundaries here. Obviously, Peter needs the reminder, and God knew that his zeal for righteous and Jewish living was going to be a stumbling block. He needed to get him past that to see that God is doing a greater thing through Jesus Christ and can still do a greater thing through Peter, who was on the struggle bus at the moment with his faith. Now, there is a challenge here for us. There is a challenge for us that I want you to ponder for a second. What's really happening here with Peter is God's holding up a mirror and saying, Peter, am I the Lord of your life? And I would ask the same of all of you. Can you answer the question, is Jesus Lord of your life? Full stop. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Jesus is the Lord of my life, then my rhythms and my thoughts and my decisions and my actions are all ordered by how Christ is calling me to live. It's waking up each and every day with a liturgy of thanks and praise to God versus just pouring your coffee and sitting at the breakfast table and yelling at your kids while you're looking at social media. Not that I know from experience. It's getting in the car and praying to the Lord about your day. With eyes open, don't crash. But praying to the Lord about your day. It's, it's waiting on God to point and say, this is the way I want you to go. This is the job I want you to go after and seize. Or maybe just wait patiently because something might happen. That is the rhythm change that comes from Jesus being the Lord of our lives. Or... Are you just a Christian in name only? Christians in name only are called nominal Christians. Christians in name only lack the faith to fully obey and trust God. They kind of straddle the line a little bit, like a little bit of Jesus, but that's all that's needed. They listen, but they have hesitation. They, they follow, but they may have doubts, and they may make distinctions of what's right or wrong. 
when confronted with the truth, they possibly reject it, they doubt it, they ponder it, they're perplexed by it. Is this really what God wants to do? They play two to three cards short of a full deck. You always need those two to three cards. So you can't play, nothing's more worse than playing a card game and missing two or three cards. But they're not having the logic, the full logic of the divine. They, they, they realize that, they don't realize the limitations of their own thoughts. Nominal Christians, they believe they know better than God. What is a challenging truth is that we all can have these moments. We all can drift into this area, be we fully devoted to the Lord or, or just dabbling. Because it's at the root of the human problem. We think we know better than God. We want to do what we just want to do. And we look at him and say, by no means, by no means, never. God is teaching and challenging us all. If I am truly the Lord of your life, can you follow me wherever I go? Can you trust me even if it doesn't make sense? And listen, God is not saying to Peter anything new. This has all been foretold in the Old Testament prophecies. Almost all the Old Testament prophecies that deal with the reunification of Israel and, and Judah deal with them all coming together and then also the outside nations. This has been a plan since the very beginning. And Peter himself has also seen this played out by Jesus. Jesus, who didn't care about clean or unclean, who touches the leper first before anything happens, who goes to the Samaritan woman and sits next to her at a well. He doesn't care about any of that dirty or unclean stuff. All he cares about is that person receiving the good news. So even if you think this doesn't make sense, does it match up to Scripture? And if it does, then this is a divine word from the Lord. Will you follow wherever he goes? Will you trust him, whatever he says to do? If Jesus is Lord of your life, you should be able to finish the sentence. I once was blank, but now I'm blank. And our, our, our instinct is to say lost and now I'm found because we sing that song over and over again. But let me challenge you. Could it also be I was once struggling with addiction? And even though that's still a part of me and never goes away, I have found healing in Jesus Christ. I once, I once was constantly angry constantly angry at friends, constantly angry at my spouse, constantly angry at my kids, but through the grace of Christ and listening to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I have come to a place of peace first, to speak in peace first. I once was unforgiving, that person who did such a horrible thing to me, but now through the eyes of Christ, I realize I cannot withhold that forgiveness from them. It is not for me to put them in that prison cell. I once was running away from God, didn't want to hear anything. But now I've been caught by the power of a great affection. I once was proud, but now through Christ I'm humbled and understand that putting others first is my divine call as a Jesus-loving Christian. That's what it means for the Lord of your life. And that's what Peter is here struggling with a little bit. Because the next week, he is now going to go, and I'm going to give the sermon away, but he's going to go to Cornelius' home and be confronted with, can Gentiles really respond to this? And if that's the case, this is, this is good, good news. 
Not only must we answer, is Jesus our Lord, but we need to answer that question every day. Because just as Peter shows us, even the best disciple can fall victim to by no means moments. And we can too. Peter was an apostle with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but still can't escape the root of humanity's sin, which says we constantly think that we know better. And so look what happens in verse 19 through 20. What gives Peter the final nudge to actually respond the correct way? What is it? Anyone see? Verse 19, shout it out. The Spirit. I'm like a broken record. I've said it all through the abiding series and the bits and pieces through Acts. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to escape these by no means moment. The Spirit looks at Peter, says to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation because I have sent them. The Spirit gives them the final kick. Guess what? God is going to do even greater things through us. And in order for that to happen, we have to respond to the urgings and the kickings of the Holy Spirit. And the great news is, is that the Holy Spirit is not going to kick us, teach us, or do anything that Jesus hasn't already revealed. So we're just carrying out what Jesus has set up for us long ago in the same line of all the apostles and the disciples that came out after him. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Don't say by no means, Lord. Change that to by all means. By all means, Lord, you are Lord of my life. And see how that begins to change the daily rhythms of your life where mornings and afternoons and evenings you talk to him through prayer. You engage in conversation through scripture. You have great fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who help encourage you in that faith. And you begin to reflect the good news of Jesus so that people who don't know or who don't understand the hope that you have will question and ask and see him through you. That's the end game be they Jew or Gentile, whoever it is, so that they respond to the gospel. By all means, Lord, by all means. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you for your gift of this story, how it challenges us and how we need to let Peter off the hook. Shame on us if we look at Peter and think, oh, you silly, stupid guy, because he's us. He's us. doesn't matter how strong we are in our faith we still have that, 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 that mark on us that gets into our stuff, has us wrestle control away from you to look at you and say, I'm never going to do that. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit in whom you promised, for those who profess a faith in you who receive that, the more we listen to the Holy Spirit, the more we allow the Holy Spirit to nudge and kick and guide us. God, Change our by no means to by all means. It's in Jesus' name we pray.